namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa aparuta desangamatassa tawara So listening to the silence here in the temple, I always regard it as one of my most favorite places to meditate because it seems to, the silence seems to resonate here very strongly. Silence is the background of everything so that the, the thoughts, the Memories, emotions arise and cease. They rise from silence and cease in silence. So we take silence as our refuge. So they advise it to abide, to surrender and abide in the silence of the here and now. So that's a very direct teaching. Because if, if you depend on a temple, then you're you you can't uh, recognize silence in other situations. So the challenge of our lives is always to re remember, abide in the silence, have that state of attentive awareness, not kind of forced attention or, or you're not fixing, fixating on an object, anything, because silence isn't an object. It's it's broad, it's open, here and now. It's like the sub substratum of all condition, all manifested phenomena. So that's why I often encourage this intentional thinking, because the problem being with our human state is that we are thinking creatures. And we, we think, we believe in the thoughts that we have. They come into our mind. We've been conditioned from the beginning of our life to, to think or to regard the body as a very personal identity. So that's why the first three fetters the ten fetters altogether, or real, complete realization. The first three, the first one is uh, Sakyaditi, which is the sense of um, me, separate person, separate form. I'm, uh, you know, because that's how it looks right now when you're 
you're looking at me, you feel separate from me. You identify with your body as your kind of world that you live in, with the kind of habit, patterns, emotions, memories, uh, attitudes, and so forth that, that you have acquired in your lifetime so far. But silence doesn't <clears throat> belong to anybody, and it's not something you, you create. It's not like concentration in order to become tranquil. It's, it's, it's a kind of broad, wide open spaciousness. Like this temple is a good example of the sense of something wide open and spacious. With a high ceiling and kind of spacious room that this um, temple is. But so much of our lives are in kutis or, you know, walking outside. We, it's a springtime, and and uh, springtime in England is very beautiful. The flowers are blooming, trees are beginning to blossom. So springtime, notice from the winter time how just the beauty, the the flowers, and the the greenness of the grass and the so uh, all this pulls you out. You want to go and look at it and admire it. Where in the wintertime, everything, you know, the, the trees, uh, the leaves all drop off the trees, and the wintertime, the trees are bare and everything is rather bleak and silent because the animals are hibernating. So that's why I always enjoy the winter's retreats here at Amaravati because of the, uh, the kind of quietness that exists inside, outside, and then the, compared to the noise of one's own mind. So rather than trying to quiet the mind, trying to make it stop thinking, or trying to, to still it and make it so it isn't so noisy, we tend to resist. We tend to try to resist the, the, uh, the thinking process, the, the negative thoughts, because we want something that we don't have. And that's uh, one kind of desire, wanting something you don't have. So when I talk about silence, then then it, might, it makes it something you want to listen to. You want to attain or get silence. So notice that, how just the, just the recommendation of something so ordinary as silence as some kind of goal to attain in meditation how that creates this bhava dhanha, or desire to get something you don't have, or something you have, uh, something you remember having in various periods of time you'd like to have all the time. The desire to become enlightened, desire not to suffer. So desire itself, is to be understood. It is a 
condition, the rising and ceasing in silence. So you can't make silence happen, but you just by learning to stop resisting, letting go, kind of relaxed, open attention, the silence comes and starts speaking to you. It doesn't have a voice. Recognize the limitation of any language. You know, it's many reflections I've made so far about language itself is conditioned phenomena. Every language, whether it's sacred language of the scriptures of Pali or Sanskrit or English, Thai, French, or whatever, they all arise and cease in, in consciousness. In the silence, they arise and cease. And that's why this intentional thinking is a rather skillful method of recognizing the silence between the words before you think and after you've thought a word, before you think the next word, you're aware of the, of the silent reality of non-thinking. So that, in this way, you're not just dependent upon meditation retreats or ideal venues for sitting in meditation, but it integrates into everything you do. A few weeks ago, I had to go to London to the eye hospital, Moorfields Eye Hospital in London, to have this injection in my left eye, which uh, the doctors are trying to save, otherwise be going blind. The right eye already is no central vision. And during this time, you know, being in the silence, sitting in the van, driving into London, waiting for the doctor, and so forth, the silence was always with me, you know. So it, it's learning to, you know, it doesn't ever leave once you recognize it and appreciate it and really value that. It's something you're going to bow to or really respect, it's the silence that's here and now. You may recite respectful words or Pali chants, sacred mantras, scriptural quotes, but they're all words. You know, so not to find fault with that, but it is limited because it is words, no matter how sacred, how profound the meanings of those words might be. Where silence isn't profound, it's not something that, that uh, has any great meaning other than liberation 
from the from the thinking mind, from the memories and the emotional habits that one has acquired. So like the second noble truth, the causes of suffering, is this attachment, this blind, habitual, conditioned attachment to the three kinds of desire. So like conditioning, cultural conditioning, what do you get when the kind of culture you're born into. You don't choose it, you get what your mother and father, your your family give you, you know, hand out to you, instill in you. And as an innocent child, you just accept things, you don't question them. You know, you start questioning life when you're, at least my experience was in the teenage, when you start investigating, you've been told all these things and assume that the, that the priests or mother or father were right. And then in, in my teens, I started questioning, doubting. And doubting is the third fetter, you know, which Kicha and Pali, doubting is, is a fetter. So is it, can you suppress doubt once it starts? You know, can you just use all your strength to suppress doubt and try to believe in something? I've tried that in my teens. Tried to just suppress the doubts I felt about Christianity by just saying, just believe and don't doubt and convincing myself that I could do that. But once you start doubting, you know, it's because you're so attached to thinking, and thinking is so limited, no matter how profound or intellectual or magnificent it might appear or might seem, it is very limited. It, you know, the conditioned phenomena can't take you to the unconditioned. Take the word Nibbāna, which is a common enough word in, in Buddhist uh, traditions, Nirvana or Nibbāna. And, uh, you know, we think of it as we try to define it. We want to realize Nibbāna. You know, so that's a desire to get something you don't have. Nibbāna is, is an enigmatic word in itself. What does it really mean? Like Tanjakun Putatat, a great sage of Thailand, who passed away many years ago, used to describe Nibbana as cooling, the rice when it's cooling, it's Nibbana-in. 
So something kind of mundane, like rice, hot rice is cooling down, or Nibbana is cooling down, or that's a more uh, kind of ordinary description, doesn't make it ter sound terribly exciting or interesting or desirable. But Nibbana is the highest happiness. You know, so the highest happiness, it's higher than ordinary happiness. The highest happiness, like uh, being brought up as a Christian, heaven is the highest happiness. And then I used to think Nibbana is higher than heaven, so it's higher than Christian happiness. So you get caught in the kind of ridiculous uh, word games in your mind trying to imagine what the highest happiness could be like. So you already created an image of what has no image. No, there's no form, no quality, no condition to Nibbana. It's a word used for release from conditioning, from letting go. Release your attachment, your grip on sankharas, on conditioned phenomena. And to be able to let go, you have to understand what you're doing, like grasping what it is, you know. Don't be afraid to grasp, intentionally grasp, just to observe this kind of tension you create in your body, in your mind, just trying to hold on to belief or a position or an opinion. How we have to constantly reaffirm our positions in life, in society. Our relationships to each other the world that we live in. We believe that the world that we have created in our mind is the real world. Because we've been told that that materialistic world out there, everything that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, everything we think is the real world. And the real world what is it? It's a creation of concepts, perceptions, memories, conditions that arise and cease according to other conditions. So you can't find Nibbana by trying to get there or creating an image of it. And by trying to want, if you're expecting the highest happiness, you'll be disappointed. But language is about, this is better than that, this is the best, that's worse, that's the worst thing, that's the worse than something else, that's bad, that's good. This is, this is a, how language is structured, it's hierarchical, structured, because only one word at a time you can think, you can't, you can't think two words in the same moment.
So just by intentionally thinking, you become, try to think two words in the same moment, you can't do it. You can think one word at a time. So that's enough to recognize the space, the silence before you start thinking, after you start thinking, and eventually you become aware even while in the midst of thinking of the silence that's underlying every thought, every emotion that one might feel throughout the day and night. And when you take refuge, you take refuge in this kind of awareness. A refuge is a safe place, isn't it? When we talk about this, the English word refuge means you go someplace for refuge to feel safe. So, you know, that's when we talk about the three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, the words themselves are limited. Buddha is a, is a word, Dhamma is a word, Sangha is a word. But they're not pointing at themselves. They're not asking us to believe in words, but to reflect, to get beyond just the word Buddha to the reality of here and now, awakened awareness, comprehension, the moment is like this. This morning, a friend of mine from Thailand called me. He's in Thailand, and he's suffered a kind of minor stroke. And he's very interested in meditation. He would often come to see me at Wat Pa Ratanawan, who lived in Bangkok. And uh, he's, uh, you know, and he's lost a lot of his memory He's recovering now. He's at home. He stopped working. Then he wants to know how to meditate, how to develop bhavana or meditation with the conditions where his memory is not very clear, where there's a lot of confusion. And, uh, you know, everything, his, his whole speech patterns while talking to me on the phone was kind of, he used the word delayed. Everything seemed to take forever to pronounce or get out of his mind. So is having a stroke, is that a hindrance to silence or losing your memory? Is that a hindrance to the path? You know, if, if your path depends on having a sharp intellect and and having everything defined and clearly, uh, clearly presented in words, concepts, beliefs, and doctrines, then that can easily disappear in a stroke, in with old age, with dementia. 
so that you know this is this is because it's acquired knowledge it's not natural it's not something that is that uh, you know that you were born with it's acquired after you're born but consciousness you are born conscious and it's natural you don't create consciousness You can't create it. You don't even, it, you can't even define it. For example, the two, um, two of the fa faculty, the earth, fire, water, air, space, and consciousness, just contemplating space. You can perceive space, can't you? So just by opening your eyes, you're looking at the spaciousness of this meditation hall. And you can see outside as space goes on and on, you know, you can perceive it through seeing, observing with sight. So space is a perception. Consciousness, you can't perceive. Try to perceive consciousness. You know, it's impossible to do. You know, there's busily, and scientists, psychologists busily trying to figure out what consciousness is when we're actually the living examples of consciousness here and now, each one of us. So it's nothing, you can't find it. This is like trying to find yourself, you can't find it. You know, and you try to find yourself. You tend to identify with some habit pattern or some kind of identity, you know. What I really am is, is you know, something you believe in. Some concept, some objective concept that you have decided that that's what you are. So you, you cling to that concept as defining your, yourself as a separate person. But as consciousness, can you really define yourself? Is it yours? Is it self? Is it personal? You know, asking questions like this So this is like investigating the reality of our existence. You know, this it's what the Buddha encouraged, you know, the whole power of the Four Noble Truths, his first sermon, is to investigate, to find out for yourself. Bajatang Vaitida Poanui to be to see this, know this for yourself through insight, through investigation, not through believing in what the scriptures tell you or the teacher tells you. So this is why, you know, one finds uh, such, you know, over the years I've used this this particular teaching, Four Noble Truths, as my reflection. I remember when I was a samanera, 
54 years ago in Thailand, and, and I read the Bhikkhu Tiloka's books on the Buddha's Word of the Buddha, I thought, this is Four Noble Truths, I'm going to really take this, take it seriously and investigate it. Because it seems simple enough, and oftentimes just reading it in English translation, you know, it, you kind of understand the words, but you don't exactly know what it all means. Because you haven't experienced it, you haven't investigated, you've, you've not taken the trip, the road sign points at here and now. Every teaching, every sutta that the Buddha taught is, is pointing at the here and now, not at something to believe and grasp and hold to, but to reflect upon what grasping is. So grasping sankaras is the cause of suffering. <clears throat> and then you reflect, how could it be anything else but dukkha? Because sankaras are changing. And they're not self. You can't find yourself as a sankara, as a condition. These are temporary changing phenomena that we identify with. So you like your body, you know, it, it's, it's in the, con, you know, it's constantly growing older. It doesn't get younger. It always has problems with internal, external, dietary problems. Disease, flu, COVID-19, dangerous threats from outside, fears about germs, and so forth, haunt the human mind. Modern life is so chuck-a-block with information that it can be quite unsettling, you know, when you think of the scenarios for the end of the world that are prominent now in the media. But one thing we can do is reflect on it. Like this friend phoning from Bangkok, encourage him to reflect on the, you know, to be aware of the kind of mental states that he creates through having this kind of ailment, this disability. Not to try to resist it or to just try to ignore it, but you can use whatever you're experiencing. The way, the way whatever, you know, whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, or whether it's physical or mental, it's still an object. It's still a condition that arises and ceases.
So what challenges life presents us with is each individual being here on the, in the, at this monastery is, is going to be different. You know, we're not, we don't have the same four elements, earth, fire, water, and air, conditioning, social conditioning, cultural conditioning, different generations, different genders, different structures, different positions in a hierarchical system, tradition. You know, so on the world of Sankara or Sansara, the world that we create is like this. You know, it's not not judging it because judging it is is adding to something that exists the way the way it is right now as we experience it. It is the way it is. You can't argue with that at this moment. You can only feel the way you're feeling at this moment. You may not have chosen or even like what you're feeling, but you can be aware it's like this. And this is a kind of wide open allowing sankaras to be what they are rather than grasping them and trying to and trying to indulge trying to get something that you don't have or get rid of something you have that you don't want so the insight when you practice the you know using the second noble truth the causes of suffering is this grasping of sankharas or conditions or phenomena. And you can reflect on that. You're not just a helpless conditioned creature that has, that can't get any perspective on grasping, on desire, because that's not what you really are. You know, you're not a desire. You're not a physical form. You're not the emotions that you uh, have. They're not the memories. So by contemplating this way, you begin to see that what you identify with is empty phenomena. All conditions are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. So this is this is a direct challenge, you know. It's a turnabout, 180 degrees to to look at something in a different way than what you've been conditioned to believe or accept or or grasp. So that's why I encourage this investigation of the way, what you're grasping and grasp it. You know, when you see your, how uh, how strong you're grasping something, grasp it even stronger, just to to know the suffering you create through this grasping, this habitual grasping of unsatisfactoriness. So what can the result be? You know, when you're blindly grasping something and, it, and, and it's suffering. So that's the first noble truth. You begin to understand the, the causes of suffering with wisdom with wisdom that is available to us when we open to life, when we investigate life. 
And we all have to learn from the way we are, you know, so nobody's got perfect sankharas, perfect conditions. Because the nature of sankhara is suffering, it's imperfect. Because they, they arise and cease, they come and go, they have no stability, no reality. When we grasp sankharas, grasp phenomena, grasp conditions, out of habit, out of conditioning, because that's what we modern education is all about, grasping ideas, concepts from books, from teachers. Thinking is a learn to think, to be logic, to think logically, reasonably. When our thinking isn't logical or reasonable, we think we are crazy, or other people think we're crazy because nonsense and irrationality is called crazy in our society. Where a normal person is logical and reasonable, a crazy person is not logical or reasonable, they're still thinking though. But whether the thoughts are crazy or rational, high or low, they are sankharas, they are conditions, that we can investigate. So my friend in Bangkok, you know, considering his situation, what's left? Since he can't really reason himself out of the, the particular situation he finds himself in, he can observe it. And this is what Bhutto, Buddha, really is, the awakened individual awareness to the reality of here and now, Dhamma. Dhamma is apparent here and now. It's not some kind of mystical concept, some kind of abstract metaphysical ideal. So keep reminding yourself, no matter how you get lost in your feelings or how many views and opinions you're grasping, they're all grist for the mill, you know, they, they can be seen in terms of past knowledge, of awareness, of letting go of this intense grasping, this blind, habitual, helpless grasping that, that we tend to do with the conditioned realm that we live in, the identities that we have. So as you begin to recognize the silence behind the noise, you know, it becomes stronger, it becomes natural. You don't, you don't have to do something, you concentrate on something to, to realize, to, to rest in the silence. There's nothing to do but to begin to awaken to it and not be so intimidated and lost in, in the conditioned realm, the world that we, the society that we're a part of. 
So that's the whole point of uh, Amaravati Monastery is to give uh, this constant encouragement, you know, to to encourage you because you, you can't be forced. Intimidating you into believing this doesn't work. You know, by intimidating you, then you become more, you know, caught in the sense of someone who's being intimidated by somebody else. That doesn't work. So threatening you with bad results, with going to some kind of hell when you die, or, you know, holding up some totally miserable scenario if you don't behave yourself and obey all the rules and and accept everything humbly and and uh, nobly which is an ideal but we have to deal with with the way we do feel rebellious or we don't agree or you know these these things arise that we we can use in practice. So it's not always trying to fit into an ideal mold of monasticism. That doesn't work. It's taking what, the way you are, you know, the conditions you find yourself thinking, the, your personality, your your habit patterns, your cultural identities, your, your views about Buddhism, views about human rights, and noble views are still views that one grasps. So have this kind of courage and willingness to, you know, to talk about the dark side or the shadow side. I remember years before I, when I was in the Navy, I was reading books on psychology. You know, I was in my early 20s and, and uh, I was terribly interested in psychology and they talk about the shadow, the dark side. And I was brought up in this very strict Christian ideal, you know, about being Christ-like, saint-like. And so the dark side was very frightening. They talked about the shadow, I became rather threatened and frightened by that when psychologists, I think Jung, Carl Jung talks about the, the, the shadow, the dark side of human nature. But I remember being fascinated by that. I want, you know, I was afraid to find out the dark side. I remember standing one night on the, we were out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I was standing on the fantail, the rear part of the ship. It was at nighttime, there's no one around. And I wanted to throw myself into the Pacific Ocean, get it over with. Because I found, you know, this, I felt so scared of finding out something I didn't want to know about myself from reading these books on psychology. 
So I stood there, and they, you know, just looking into the water as the ship was going along, and and it was dark, and I thought, by the time they find out I'm gone, you know, I'll be eaten up by sharks or fish. Nobody will ever find me again. I thought that would be peaceful to just jump into the middle of the Pacific Ocean and drown rather than because I didn't know what to do about my fears. And so then I, I had this image. My mother came to visit me in a, in a dream, in a kind of visual dream. And I thought, oh, they would absolutely break my mother's heart if I did this, so I won't do it. <laughs> so I thank my mother for... <laughs> But then, you know, it did awaken something in me, this possibility of looking at something evil or terrible inside oneself in a way that wasn't threatening. That one isn't what you're thinking or the memories you have or the fears. That you're not limited by all these kind of emotional habits that we acquire. That we have a good side and a, and a bad side, but they're both conditions phenomena that arises and ceases. And so suddenly, by reflecting just in this simple way, you're, you're more brave to challenge life, to, to look at it and use what the way you are, the kind of characters you have, whether you're aggressive or passive or, or you're positive or negative, you're depressed or you're you're elated by, excited, and think life is wonderful. You know, these are, these are conditions that arise and cease and change. And what is mindfulness allows us to be aware of change. Mindfulness is, is, is that open door to the deathless. So you begin to experience a kind of fearlessness when you really appreciate what we have. And the way one is, you know, you might not like yourself very much, or you might think you're better than somebody else. But even that is conditioned, isn't it? To, to consider oneself superior to others is still a thought habit pattern, arrogance, conceit and arrogance are conditions that arise and cease, or feeling inferior, you're not good enough, you haven't enough bar of me, you haven't enough accumulated virtue or grace to really become enlightened, or you can really despise yourself because you're not perfect. 
But all these conditions, whether what what way you you operate, exaggerating the positive and exaggerating the negative, exaggeration is proliferating on it, you know, making something more than what it is. So arrogance and conceit is like this. You know, so you, ideal for a Buddhist samana is not to be arrogant or conceited, you know, so that's, that's the ideal. But sometimes we are arrogant and conceited, and that's still just for the mill. It's something to observe. It's like this, not to say I shouldn't be arrogant. And then you're, you're adding to it. You're making it so personal. You know, I should be humble. I shouldn't be arrogant and think I'm better than somebody else. Is, is you know, the, is going to holding up an ideal, but not opening to the way, to what's really happening, to the way it is. Or to feel inferior, to feel you're not good enough, or not clever enough, or not beautiful enough. You haven't enough virtues to, to really live the monastic life. I've heard that from many people. You know, like you, those of us who live the monastic life have accumulated a lot of virtues so we can develop the path. And that's all rubbish, garbage that we create in our minds about who's developed and who isn't, who's advanced, who's virtuous, who isn't, who's selfish, who isn't selfish. You know, all these words arise and cease in, in everyone's consciousness. So you begin to see there's nothing to fear. Fear is, you know, imagining something dark and dangerous, humiliating or repulsive or dreading, you know, that you imagine. There's a natural fear that arises for survival of the fittest. So when a tiger starts chasing you, you run. You don't just stand there and observe it. Because the conditions there are obvious. They speak for themselves. A tiger is a very dangerous creature to have, uh, takes an interest in you, which is not something to your benefit. But so much of our life, like here at Amravati, isn't, we don't have to deal with bears and tigers and, and spies and, and uh, terrorists, things like that, that are quite prevalent in other places. Everybody here has, uh, you know, is committed to, uh, to the precepts you know, kind of moral integrity that we use to observe. is not something to grasp and identify with, to feel you're, you're better because you keep the precepts better than somebody else, and that becomes 
conceit, but to observe the, the weaknesses that we have and or, or they are what they are, but when you see them as personal, like my weaknesses, then you're adding to it. Feeling tempted, feeling weak is like this, so you're seeing it for what it is. And you can also observe the, how you tend to identify with it, like, you know, if you, someone I should be strong is the ideal. So the samana should be strong is, 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 is high-minded. It's still a sankhara, still a condition. So this way, even from our weaknesses or our bad habits, we learn from by investigating, by observing the attachment, either through blindly following or, or resisting them. Whippa would dhanha, the desire to get rid of something. Passing judgment on yourself as a person, a separate person, whether you're a good or bad person, right or wrong person. You know, this is proliferating with thought when, create our, when we identify like my anger, my greed, my weaknesses. This is, you know, I'm adding something to, if will a weakness, a temptation, a weakness. And I can be aware of that. When I'm aware, I don't add to it with, uh, I'm weak. Feeling weak and tempted is like this. And then you have the precepts to, you know, that help us to not act on unwholesome uh, feelings or intentions. So we learn to restrain ourselves with the, with the Vinaya discipline, with the precepts. But they're not for grasping in some kind of personal endeavor to be virtuous, but they're skillful means towards awareness, towards awakening. So now that the winter's retreat is over and spring has sprung, and people, uh, you know, there'll be more movement, more socializing, don't see this as some kind of degeneration of practice. You know, seeing retreat is the only time you can practice is still another view that you might be grasping. But see, every moment is, is awareness operating here and now. So I offer this for your reflection.